C.S. Lewis wrote, No book is really worth reading at the age of 10, which is not equally, and often far more worth reading at the age of 50. The only imaginative works we ought to grow out of are those which it would have been better not to have read at all. While Lewis was not thinking about his own books when he wrote this, what he said certainly applies to his series of children's books known collectively as the Chronicles of Narnia. The Chronicles begin when the Pevensey children enter the land of Narnia through a magical wardrobe. Once in Narnia, they learn that the land is being ruled by an evil white witch who ensures that in Narnia it is always winter, but never Christmas. The people and creatures of Narnia long for the return of Narnia's rightful king, the lion Aslan. Only Aslan can defeat the witch and establish righteous rule in Narnia. In third grade, Geneva's grammar school students begin reading the seven books that make up the Chronicles of Narnia. They finish in fifth grade. If you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, I hope today's podcast will remind you of the beautiful spiritual truths contained in its pages and inspire you to read them again. If you've never read them, I hope today's podcast will inspire you to pick them up and read them for yourself. Hope you enjoy this edition of Around the Table. Welcome to Around the Table, a podcast hosted by Geneva School of Bernie. Please join Academic Dean Dirk Russell as he hosts conversations to foster growth, learning, and connections to the glory of Jesus Christ. I am happy to be joined today by members of Geneva's Grammar School faculty. We're going to talk together about the Chronicles of Narnia. Thank you all for being here. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. I want to start by going around the table and having you all introduce yourselves. So Carrie, if you would start, tell us who you are and what you teach. Hi, I am Carrie Strickland. I teach fifth grade language arts um, and I actually cover the books, The Silver Chair, um, it's their summer read between fourth and fifth grade. And then I teach The Last Battle and we're right in the throes of The Last Battle right now as we speak this spring. I teach seniors and I feel like I'm in the throat <laughs> with them as well. I'm Tanya Mallory and I teach fourth grade language arts and I get them started on the silver chair going from fourth to fifth. So the last, uh, the last week of school we'll start that, dive into that. I teach Prince Caspian during the year. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is read by our librarian to the fourth graders and then coming from third to fourth is uh, The Horse and His Voice. We talk briefly about it for one day at the beginning of fourth grade. Very good. I'm Alex Marcos. I'm the grammar school Latin teacher. So I teach Latin third, fourth, and fifth grade. I actually don't teach the Chronicles of Narnia directly, <laughs> but I love them. And uh, I recently uh, completed a master's degree in apologetics. And in that master's program, I got to study with Michael Ward, who is a Lewis scholar and we got we took a whole course through Lewis's writings including Chronicles of Narnia So I try as much as I can to bring it into <laughs> Latin or history or wherever I can put it in. Very good. I'm Tanya Fikes and I'm a third grade teacher um, in the grammar school and all third grade teachers um, usually get to teach reading mm -hmm. to their students but this year I've been the language arts teacher so and I have we have, um, usually a parent will read, and um, this year the librarian has read The Magician's Nephew, and then 
Um, we've been reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So we Excellent. just finished today. Yes. Oh, yes. perfect timing. <laughs> perfect timing. Well, there are, of course, seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. We, your students read them all. So that's a lot of time that's devoted to the Chronicles of Narnia. Why study Chronicles of Narnia? Why do we spend so much time reading these books? I think just there's, you know, the biblical truths for sure that we get. And uh, I actually had a conversation with my, my own junior, uh, who's 11th grade this year, and just asked him last night, I said, is there, you know, I'm talking about the Chronicles tomorrow, is there something that you remember, one that you enjoyed? And he said, I really love the silver chair. That was my favorite. He thought that was different. And then I said, you know, is there a biblical truth that you carry to this day? And he said, Mom, I remember uh, in the last battle when they get to the door, and he said, I, I won't forget, you know, the the bad people that went to the left, you know, looked in Aslan's eyes and went to the left. And he said, I, from that moment, thought, I want to go through the door. I want to be the one that goes through the door. And, uh, you know, that just impacted me so greatly of, you know, how many years it's been now since he's six years. and that he still carries that with him. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the ultimate of why we teach <laughs> this right that's there. That's great, you know? that's great. Well, and I think that they're import it's important and it's certainly an emphasis at, at Geneva School of Bernie Grammar School that we foster wonder and mm -hmm. just interest and excitement and imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what these books do. Um, they're, a, they're a fantasy really a fantasy world that they get to dive into over the over several years and I think fostering imagination is so important to really fostering that wonder and that curiosity and I think that's what really what fantasy does and I think that's really what C.S. Lewis wanted to do with these books is really to, to really inspire and foster that imagination and I think um, well it's Pascal that said that that was the strongest faculty we have, is imagination. And so with that strongest faculty, I think when we um, really encourage them to read these good books and to go deep with them, it, I think it does. It builds their imagination. It helps them to be better thinkers. It helps them with vocabulary and understanding. And not, I mean, it's everything in fifth grade. There's so many literary devices that we can expand upon because he's such a fabulous writer. And um, I love in uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on uh, fairy tales where he talks about the power of the adjective. And I think C.S. Lewis really encapsulates that um, adjective because he has such imaginative language. He has... Um, such it, it just creates this whole other world for them to dive into and they really do just sit in marvel and wonder and we have great conversations it mm -hmm. also fosters really really great dialogue mm -hmm. great great conversations sometimes it's deep conversations about theological mm -hmm. um uh, kind of concepts and issues i think i just think it really what c.s lewis accomplishes with these books is incredible mm -hmm. with their little minds and their little development from you know, third grade through fourth grade through fifth grade. By the time they're finished with them, the deep thoughts that have uh, that they have, you know, kind of toyed with and played with are just incredible. It's just incredible. So I think fostering that imagination is what is 
you know, just so important for them. And I think it carries them through life. And like you said, it's so mm-hmm. as I was thinking about talking about all of this, I was thinking, what did C.S. Lewis really want to do with these books? Mm-hmm. He wanted them to recognize as adults all these deep theological concepts, mm-hmm. not necessarily for them to catch them when they read them when they're young, yeah. but to recognize Christ in the characters, in mm-hmm. Aslan, and to recognize these concepts later in life. Mm-hmm. He wasn't busy trying to necessarily teach them the theological concepts at 8, 9, 10, 11, but he just wants to just put plant the seed mm-hmm. yeah, so and, that it'll grow. Right. Give them a foundation. And we'll get into, we'll yes. get into some of those themes here in, in just a minute. Any, right. any other right. thoughts? I, I'm just thinking, tag along with what Carrie said, like, I'm just thinking the teaching aspect of it, there's so much vocabulary, there's elements of fiction that we try to, you know, teach all good fiction has. Mm-hmm. And one quote I read, it just, it really does, it helps them choose what to be and not to be. Mm-hmm. And and see that mm-hmm. in both characters, like, wow, yes. I see in this character a way I don't want to be and a way I do want to be. And then just being able to sit with that, um, one of the quotes I read was um, that he said, a child who knows, I'm sorry, reading the right books can equip a child to recognize the dragons that lurk outside and within. Mm-hmm. A child who knows about dragons and witches from the right books will know to stay away from them and will know that he or she does not want to become one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was powerful, like to look at some of these characters and see my own limitation and my mm-hmm. own struggle. And my own sin. And my own sin. And, and they, they do, they look deeply mm-hmm. into their own sin and they can start to identify it's amazing you can see conviction all over some of their faces (laughs) and it's uh, not only that you see their sin but it's we have the character of Aslan that bounds into the story and helps the the children wrestle with their Mm -hmm. sin and and leads them to make those good decisions Mm -hmm. we see uh, Edmund lying into the wardrobe making terrible decisions Mm -hmm. all the way through until he meets Aslan and they go up on the hill and they talk and Aslan tells him, we don't know what he says, right. but we know that conversation changes his life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the very first thing after Edmund comes from, away from that conversation, he's been so prideful and thinking of himself all the time, but his first thing is he looks right at Aslan. Mm-hmm. And we see this mm-hmm. humility develop, develop in him. And toward the end of the book, we see him actually stand in harm's way to mm-hmm. protect uh, his siblings. Right, yeah. we see that transformation. Mm-hmm where we see this character making poor choices, they meet Aslan, mm-hmm. and they start to get on the right path. It's not automatic, which mm-hmm. I love uh, how Lewis puts it. Uh, and with Edmund and also the character of Eustace, when, when Eustace has his transformation, he says, I would like to say that he was a better boy. The truth is that he began mm-hmm. to be a better boy. Mm-hmm. Right? He still had relapses, but the cure had begun. Mm-hmm. And so we follow these characters seeing them wrestle with their own sin and conquering it little by little with the help of Aslan. Well, that reminds me of also when Lewis talks about there are no small decisions. Every single decision counts and matters, and it just affects where you are down the road. And so that's, I mean, that's really been powerful in my life from learning that from his other writings, and you see it play out. You see so so many of his other writings play out in the, the Chronicles, too. Yeah, I'm thinking about that, that aspect of transformation. We talked about Edmund, and we see it, obviously, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But, I mean, he, 
mm. betrayed <laughs> his his siblings. He betrayed his people. Um, and in Prince Caspian, later on, so this is the next book, they're confronted with whether or not they're going to believe Lucy in something. Mm -hmm. And Edmund mm -hmm. is the one yes. who stands up. Yes. Yes. And uh, he says, when we discovered Narnia a year ago, or a thousand years ago, whichever it is, it was Lucy <laughs> who discovered it first. And none of us would believe her. Yeah. I was the worst of the lot, mm -hmm. I know. Mm -hmm. Yet she was right after all. Wouldn't it be fair to believe her this time? I vote for going up. Yeah. And I love that. I was the worst. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've changed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so seeing that in a character like Edmund, I think is really powerful. Right. Not as his change. He sees the change in himself. Yeah. He recognized this is where I was. I recognized yeah. I was the worst. And now I recognize that I'm this better person, right? Because of, uh, because of Aslan. Yeah. And now I'm going, I'm going to make this change and I'm going to stand by Lucy. Yes. That's great. So we've talked a little bit about Aslan and Aslan, of course, is central to the stories uh, in a number of different ways. And so let's unpack Aslan as a character, his interactions with the children, some of the things that Aslan does. And we'll start with probably what is one of the most well-known lines from the book. When the children get into Narnia, they don't know anything about this world. They meet up with talking beavers and the beavers are talking about the return of Aslan. And the children are afraid because this is a lion and they want to know if he's safe mm -hmm. and Mr. Beaver says of course he's not safe but he's good mm -hmm. can you all talk a little bit about that well I had it's been great this year this is actually my first year to teach the last battle in the classroom because last year we were um, online so it's been great this year to have actual <laughs> students in class and so it's been fun. I mean, I think we can all testify that every year we teach these books, there's some new epiphany for us. Mm -hmm. And so this year, what stood out to me in the last battle is what was missing. Because they remembered that he's not a tame lion in the last battle. But they forget a very important element. So they're all operating, all the Narnians are operating out of fear. They're scared to death, death of Aslan because they all remember he's not a tame lion. And there's this false Aslan who is, has been set up and he is definitely ruling with fear, with the hand, of, you know, just a, a, a hand of fear. And they are reacting out of fear because they forget, they forget mm -hmm. that he is good. Mm -hmm. They forget that part. Mm -hmm. that, and it's, you can see it affects them. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, the, the goodness of God. And it just so happens that our attribute for this month is good. good. And so we've gone back to Romans 8, 28 quite a bit. I think I've quoted it to them over and over again to help them remember and to say, look, they forgot. They forgot the goodness of God. But he, they come up through hardship after hardship after hardship. And so it is, it's just Romans 8.28 is so good for them to remember and to hear. God works all things together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So we've talked extensively about suffering and hardships and how we have to remember, even though we're walking through a hard time, that he is good. And yeah. so it's just been a, a fun little kind of moment over and over again in all my classes mm. just to keep coming back to that, the goodness of God. 
One thing we're, we're discussing about the goodness is that he asks us, because he's good, he asks us to do hard things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we, it's so hard to hear, especially now in our culture. Like, just because God is good, that doesn't mean he's just going to give you the fluff. He's mm-hmm. good because he wants you to grow. So growth means you have to leave your dying brother to go put other things, you know, help others. For the good of others, you have to. That's hard. He's going to ask you to do a hard thing, and the good of um, letting Peter win his spurs. Do this on your own, and he felt mm-hmm. sick. And I was like, <laughs> he felt sick, and then he said, "No, go." You know. So we talk about his goodness too in different ways. About um, you know, he's going to ask us to do good things for our good and the good of others, and that we can't. His. Yeah, so that's kind of what... Yeah, right. Yeah, that kind of, it reminds me of in Prince Caspian, a little bit close to what you were just reading, um, when Lucy Lucy sees him and is excited to see him, and then she begins to kind of make excuses on why she didn't follow him. <laughs> you know, and, all, and it just says, from somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. <laughs> you know, like she knew... Uh, but he's safe and he's good and she knows that but then to what you were saying Tanya you know he really without saying it goes along with what you were saying Alex in that he lets the children get to this point on their own mm-hmm. and she realizes this is going to be hard to go back and get my my siblings because they already don't believe me mm-hmm. and so she looks at him and says you mean you want me to go back and he acknowledges, yes, that's what I want you to do, which is going to be hard for her. Mm-hmm. But she knows it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Right. And what I love is that Aslan sets the example of what it means to be good because goodness takes sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And what we see in Aslan in Linus of the Wardrobe, he sacrifices himself, right? Good characters often have to go through suffering. You know, Aslan is, right, the, the son of the emperor beyond the sea. He's you know, the Christ figure of Narnia. Mm-hmm. And just like our Christ, he is going to suffer. And we see that in the children in their own development to become this holy person that God has created them to be. It often, we have to go through suffering. And Aslan sets the example. Mm-hmm. Right? He gives his life for Edmund. <clears throat> and we follow Aslan through the pain and the suffering of, the, of, of, the, of his execution at the hands of the witch. But through it all, we see his courage. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. he walks, he stumbles, but he courageously walks mm-hmm. up to that stone table and is willing to lay down his life. And that example encourages all the other characters. We talked about Edmund follows that example of putting himself in harm's way. And it, it teaches us mm-hmm. that if we want to be good, if we want to become better people, to grow in virtue, we have to be ready to, to sacrifice, to stand in the gap between uh, an evil force, whether it's the witch um, or the, the, the serpent in the silver chair mm-hmm. um, or the, the ape and his lies. We have to stand in the gap and to defend, uh, to defend Narnia, defend our friends, defend our family. And that's going to take a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think as well, part of the reason the witch goes through with executing Aslan is because she doesn't know mm-hmm. the deeper magic. And had she known the deeper magic, maybe she would have made a different decision. And that reminds me too that as, as God calls upon us to go through suffering, 
we know him through how he has revealed himself in his word. We know Romans 8, 28, that he causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him are called according to his purposes. And so it's not just go out and suffer, mm -hmm. but it is, here is the truth mm -hmm. of what this produces. Paul says the word of the cross is foolishness, but we know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I see that aspect of it as well, that when, when we're talking to the children about, the students about Aslan and the sacrifice he makes, we, we also can emphasize, we know mm -hmm. these things because of what God has, has revealed. What else about Aslan? Aslan, of course, is central. So what, what else? Right, also, what you mentioned about the word and uh, I love in the, in the silver chair when Jill he pushes Eustace off, off a cliff and <laughs> you now she's in this terrible situation and, and Aslan says, I have a job for you to do. It is, you, you've made it harder now, but you need to trust my word. And he gives her the signs. One of my favorite scenes when he because you know, up here your mind is clear and the air is clear, but when you go down to Narnia, right, the air will thicken. And it's going to be hard for you to remember the signs. He says, make sure that it doesn't confuse your mind. And so he proceeds, he tells her the, the signs. And he says, repeat them to you. Tell them to yourself when you wake up in the morning. Say them when you go to bed. You know, he, you know, he is giving her the words of life that is going to help her through the whole journey. And that just shows God has given us his word and he's, he's given us the same command, meditate on it day and night, you know, say it in the morning, say it at, at evening. When your children ask you, why do we do these things? Tell them the story. And Lewis shows us here, Aslan is also the word, just mm -hmm. like Christ is the word. And those signs help them in their journey. Jill forgets them. She, she does get confused. <laughs> she messes up. Uh, and yet, it always comes back to those signs and they trust Aslan's words and it helps them to find the prince and to uh, conquer the Emerald Witch. Well, and that kind of piggybacks on the, the next book that we happen to read is The, the Last Battle. And in that book, Tyrion, King Tyrion um, is having to discern, is really having to discern between the lie and the truth because you've got um, the ape, you know, really... Uh, propagating this lie that this is about this false Aslan and he's he's coming up with all kinds of terrible things for Narnians and Narnia and he is having Aslan's not as present in the the last battle he's he's just not there he's absent however Tyrion remembers he goes right. back and he remembers Narnian history mm -hmm. so he remembers the word he remembers the stories the great stories and that helps him to discern between what is true and what is a lie and then he remembers wait no 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 Aslan is not Tash and Tash is not Aslan they are different and that's when he remembers that wait wait yes Aslan is good. It's really the point where he goes back and remembers that Aslan is good because all you've heard to that point is he's not a tame lion, he's not a tame lion, and just the fear. And so that's uh, remembering the word, remembering the history, remembering you know the past and what happened brings it forward and helps him to discern through logic and reason um, the difference between the truth and the lie, to really weed out the truth. Yeah, it, it takes me back to the book of Deuteronomy. 
where Moses is, as the people are, as the nation is preparing to enter into the promised land, over and over and over, he'll tell them, remember, remember, remember. And I think that's a lot of what you all do. Uh, in, in your work with the grammar school students, you are imparting those truths, and maybe they don't fully grasp Romans 8.28, but hopefully there comes a day when they remember. Mm -hmm. And they do. And actually, mm -hmm. there are some students that go through really hard things. I mean, there's, there's some hard situations, um, some challenges and some difficulties. And there's just, I've had some tears as we've talked about it. And I'm able to pull those students aside and just have a moment with them where I can just pour into them God's love and say, I know you're going through something hard, but God is good. And we, can, and we just keep going back to that over mm -hmm. and over again this year. I also think too, like the the mystery of God, mm -hmm. um, and how you can't He comes and goes, and yeah, you never know. He's not a And I just one thing that hit me this year, reading it again, and I told the students every time you read this, don't don't put it away, get mm -hmm. it out again and again and again because you will learn more and more. Um, but one of the things I learned this year from reading it was just seeing God's per mystery more and His provision. And Aslan, and the ways that the forms that he, just little things that I saw show up, you know, in the leading of the Redbird, you know, as the students, um, or the, sorry, students, the children, you know, are in Narnia and they're wondering where to do next, to go find Tumnus, and all of a sudden there's this Redbird, and, and just the different ways the snow falls and doesn't fall and it's inappropriate for their travels and making it harder for the witch to follow them, or, covering their tracks, you know, just mm. these, you know, for me, I think it's good for me to just stop and see the provision of God, too. And then also the mystery, because he comes and goes in and out, we can't press him. Mm -hmm. He's not ours to control and to figure out, but to enjoy, and to, you know, when he's there, and when he's present. And, and that's the heart of, he's not, yeah. a, he's not a tame lion. You yeah. cannot put him in a box, yeah. and you can't control him. And we were just talking about that today in class mm -hmm. as well, because... We've just walked into, uh, we, we're looking at a door in the last battle that makes no sense. It's in a field and there's a blue sky. Wait, we just came into the stable and there's, they, they were having a challenging time really grasping that concept. And I was able to say, you know what? We don't understand the ways of God. Can we under, fully understand God? No. Can we understand heaven? No. Is C.S. Lewis giving us just a little glimpse so that maybe, maybe we can have a slight understanding of what heaven might be like. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and that whole concept of time. Oh, yes. Narnia. Like, <laughs> we just yeah. spent years in Narnia, and now we tumbled out of the wardrobe, and it, mm -hmm. not a moment has been right. Has it passed? So, and they're like, but how can that? I'm like, remember? <laughs> remember? We have this, you know, lion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and he talks in the last battle that all of Narnia was just the beginning. Mm. It was the title, what does he call it? The title page. Um, the beginning of chapter one. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yes. And it really, that speaks to something else I think that's a theme throughout this, and it's the longing for home. Mm. We just long for home. And I, yes. one of my favorite scenes is Rebachit longing for Aslan's country. And it, you see that once you start 
you, you cue in, oh, longing for home. You see it in so many ways, in so many characters. We are all longing for home. We all have that God-sized hole that only only He can fill. And so we can try to fill it with the materialism. We can try to fill it with all kinds of things from this world, but only Christ can fill it. And so I think you see that throughout all of these series is that longing for our true home. Yeah. I want to jump in real quick because you mentioned Reap Cheap. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, I love Reap Cheap. <laughs> and in the last battle when Reap Cheap shows oh, back yes. up. Huh? <laughs> but Reap Cheap is a mouse. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective, he's the bravest mm-hmm. of all the Narnians. Mm-hmm. And I love because it's so biblical that C.S. Lewis makes the mouse. Mm-hmm. The bravest, mm-hmm. That's right. the most valiant yeah, yeah. character, and I love in the, in the end of Prince Caspian when Reepicheep has lost his tail, and <laughs> the whole Everybody. his whole army is ready to, to cut off their tail. And you know what Aslan <laughs> says to him? Ah, oh, you have conquered me. You have great hearts. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and that at the door. for us uh, as followers of Christ. Again, back to Paul saying to the Corinthians. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the wise. And so you can be a mouse and be the bravest, uh, the bravest member of, of Narnia. Any other thoughts about Aslan? Just kind of, you know, what Carrie was saying, the hope that we live with, the hope, the longing that we'll never have. And I was reading something uh, Today, and it was just talking about dissatisfaction in life is near the root of all kinds of sin. It says, at the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. Mm. Which then, you know, of course, reminded me of this, uh, where Jill, in the silver chair, before she really knows Aslan, she sees him, and of course she's scared of him, and so she tries to get away from him, and then she's extremely thirsty, like you were talking about, and uh, he lays down between her and the water. And she, she's like, do I run? Do I go find more water? And then he just looks at her and says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. But she's still not 100% sure. But I just, every time I read that, because I do get to that uh, before they head out for summer, I just can't read it without tearing up and telling them, only he will satisfy. Yeah. Only he will satisfy. And there's that, that, you know, kind of going back where you talked about, there's the fear that he's not a tame lion. And, and Jill right. already realizes that. You know, it doesn't take her long to realize that, you know, he's, he's wild. He's just, there's this uh, mm-hmm. kind of danger here. But she comes to realize his good. He, 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 she trusts him. Mm-hmm. But she goes into that trust. Yeah, we, we talk sometimes about him, him being a lion and the paws of a lion. Oh, like, yeah. the, there's claws there. Mm-hmm. Right, and he chooses <laughs> yes. when they are out and when they are mm-hmm. retracted. And mm-hmm. there's a part in line which the word where Peter he puts his and it says he uses the adjective velveted paws on Peter's oh, shoulder. And yeah. I thought, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. That they are velveted because he he didn't have you know he chooses yeah. when those claws. Mm-hmm. Are used and when they're not. And that's and one they, of my favorite lines yes. in the last battle. <laughs> but courage, child. We are all between the paws of the true Aslan. <laughs> that's wonderful. And that's, you know, one of the things I love, and if I can read this without tearing up, it'll be amazing. Um, Shasta, when Aslan meets Shasta for the first time, 
and he's walking up alongside him and Shasta tells him his story and says, man, don't you think it was so unfortunate, bad luck to meet all these lions? And he says, there was only one lion. He says, what? what do you mean? I just told you there were at least two. <laughs> the first night and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. Says, how do you know? How do you know, all, how do you know my story? He says, I was the lion. And Ashasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing. The voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that it would reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to a shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight. To receive you. Mm. That's so beautiful. So, yeah. The provision. Beautiful. His provision. Yeah. And, and with every I was the lion, he's just pushing back the curtain of, of darkness and of ignorance. Mm. And Shasta is seeing more and more of, he's, lady mm-hmm. says later, he's behind all of the stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. He tells Jill, uh, how do we get here? You wouldn't have gotten here unless I mm-hmm. called you. Yes. And so we see his. His providence and those sorts of things. Speaking of the pause, because we see the pause also in the silver chair when King Caspian is dead and Aslan tells Eustace, uh, bring a thorn. And he says, drive it into my paw, son of Adam, said Aslan holding up his forepaw and spreading out the great pad toward Eustace. Must I, said Eustace? Yes, said Aslan. And so that paw that uh, scratches, tears, cuts, is also the paw that's offered. And the blood from that paw is pierced, yeah. And the blood gives life. And I love the way he says that, you know, the one drop of Aslan's blood you know, is worth more than the whole earth. Is mm-hmm. something like that there? It was, you know, there's so much worth in, you know, just the drop of blood, which they used to, so, you know, Caspian comes back and they kind of go in the world, but that just beautiful baptismal imagery, mm-hmm. there's, Caspian has just died and he's in the water, kind of the suspended state, and it takes a drop of blood from Aslan to bring his resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, just what a beautiful image of Christ's pierced hands, mm-hmm. right, the blood flowing from the cross, is that what gives us new life? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've, we've talked a lot about Aslan, and I can already tell we're not going to get through all of the things I wanted to talk about, <laughs> um, let alone probably all that you, you want to talk about. So um, in the time that we have left, I want to talk about some of the stories of redemption that we see in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And I think... Uh, maybe one of the best places to start would be with Edmund. Edmund, of course, betrays his family. Can you all talk about Edmund's redemption, not just in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but where we see it in other in other books? I love been just real in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, he's he's seen so foolish and so and a traitor, and uh, just at the end, you know how he was named. Edmund the Just, you know, and yes. like, you know, we just kind of marveled at that this today with his students, like that he's grown in wisdom and he's just 
learning and actually what you quoted earlier, you know, what he told Lucy, like he sees it, he gets it, you know, coming from such a, he just mindset of like, everyone's out to get me or they're, you know, and that mindset has been transformed to, no, we should trust her. Like she knows what she's talking about. Speaking that life into Edmund though, calling him the just, even if he isn't there yet, (laughs) he takes the development, but Aslan Mm -hmm. speaks those words over, you are going to be the just yeah. that's what I created you to be that's your role here in my kingdom and he, even if he's not there yet he's going to get he speaks that that word over him yeah. can I just slip something in I just one thing I think is so cool that when he the children meet Aslan he knows their name yes mm-hmm. he knows their name I'm like look he knows their name. they've never met him and he knows what they need that's what I was thinking earlier he knows what each person in this story needs and he's different he's different to everyone just i mean i just love it because that's how christ is with us he knows what eustace needs to grow and change and to be what do you call it alex and undragoned he's undragoned and he knows what edmund what it's going to take to bring edmund back and i i just love that aspect mm-hmm. is is he knows what it takes to be redeemed and each character mm-hmm. needs something a little different. Right, and in Queen, if you bring up Edmund and Eustace, one of the things I love that we get to hear from Edmund in The Voyage of the Don Treader is that he has a conversation with Eustace. You know, that whole beautiful scene of, of, of Aslan taking off the dragon skin of Eustace, it's told in flashback to Edmund. <laughs> and Edmund reflects, you know, you know, you were, <laughs> you know, you were, a, you know, a fool, but I was a traitor. He says, you know, I was the same place where Aslan had to transform me just like he had to transform you. Yeah. It's like, I was worse. You know, I was, I was a traitor, right? Still recognizing that sin. But they get to share that beautiful moment of we both met Aslan now mm-hmm. and we are both mm-hmm. the different and the better for it. Mm-hmm. Forever changed. And, and so it's been mentioned, but let's go a little bit deeper. Eustace is, when we first meet Eustace, uh, he's just, he's hard to like. Uh, he's That's really a hard polite to like. polite way to say it. Right. And <laughs> Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> and fittingly, Eustace is turned into a dragon. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so talk about Eustace as a dragon and Eustace, the, the significance of, of Eustace trying to get rid of his own dragon skin and his inability to do that. Can you all, can you all talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would love to. I actually brought it up in, in, in a Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago. <laughs> it, it's so applicable, and, and, and the, the transformation of Eustace is such a beautiful picture of, of what Lewis does over the whole Seven Narnia Chronicles, is that there are so many layers of meaning in the text. Because you've got the story, Eustace sleeps on a dragon's treasure, and he's read all the wrong books. He knows, he doesn't know that if you sleep on a dragon's treasure, you turn into a dragon, thinking dragonish thoughts. And because of that, that greed uh, that he has, you know, trying to fill his pockets with the treasure, right? He is, he has been turned into, he, he gets to see the outward manifestation of what sin is like. Right? In that dragon skin, right? the scales, the hard scales, the fire breathing, and the the claws. This is his sin nature that was on the inside is now manifested on the outside. 
right? That's what happens, right? When you think these dragonish thoughts, yeah. you and that's what happens in a fairy tale. You 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 know kind of embody that sin that you bring into the story, mm-hmm. and when he goes to when Aslan calls him up, he says, you, "You've got to take off that skin. You've got to undress." He says, "Okay, you know, I'll scratch off this layer," and he goes in, still there. So scratch harder, okay, you know, scratches off another, another layer, all scabby and knotted, uh, and he's still a dragon. And he, he cannot take away his own sin. And Aslan says, you must let me undress you. And this beautiful moment where Eustace, he sees the claws, <laughs> he knows what's coming, but he just lays there. Right? Mm-hmm. He opens himself up for Aslan to make that first tear that goes right into his heart. And what a beautiful image of surrender to the power of Christ. Mm-hmm. Once we've tried and tried and tried to take out our sin, to try to you know, cast it off, it's only the power of Christ. It's only Aslan. With those paws that we talked about, those claws come out to rip away the sin. And at first it feels like he's just going to just rip our own flesh. He was like, you know, I'm not going to survive this. Yeah. And he tears it off, and, it, and it's so much darker and thicker than he than even his other ones. Right. We see the full weight and, and ugliness of sin. And then he has his own baptism. Right. He throws him. He smarts all over, and he comes out, uh, boy. So we in the plot, that's. His undragging. Now he gets to be a boy again. He gets to continue his journey. In that other layer, we see Christ as the one who takes away our sin. And also, even on another layer, we have Christ conquering the serpent, mm-hmm. right? the devil. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these layers in here. That's why you know I love that we read it in grammar school because they get the first layer. Right, he's not. He gets taken out, and he's not a dragon anymore. We may see the layer that he's like Christ, who takes away our sin, and then we get to go even deeper. You know, this is this is the whole redemption story: Christ coming in and defeating the serpent all the way back from the garden. And you can just keep going deeper and deeper into these images. And it's why I think as teachers going through this, we are so impacted. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just incredible to walk through this with students because they you, I, I think they don't they get that certainly get that the that top layer they get and then they get deeper as they get in because I taught the line the witch in the wardrobe in third grade for seven years and now I'm teaching this fifth grade and it's a higher level and what they're able to grasp and internalize and the deep conversations we have it's incredible so they grasp these concepts so well, and then they take it with them. And it's just incredible to know what they're going to leave grammar school with as they move on. And then they move into the Lord of the Rings, and it goes even yes. deeper. Yeah. I mean, it's just an incredible connection. I just think it's beautiful what we do here. And, and I love with Eustace, too, that when the dragon skin is removed, it's not as if he's perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's still, and that that speaks to our sin and our dealing with our sin. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're redeemed fully in Christ. We're declared righteous in Christ. He takes away the penalty and the power of sin, but we still have to wrestle with it. Mm-hmm. Only God to, can change us. I mean, yeah, that's truly yeah, the right. message. Only God can change us. We just have to say yes. yes. Right, it's that mm-hmm. surrender. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And we can trust him. 
Mm-hmm. We can trust him. Exactly. Because he's good. He's good. Exactly. Well, we are almost out of time. And so I'm going to give you all one more opportunity. What What is one more thing that we didn't cover that you want to cover? What What's one more thing that we need to know? Going back to what we said about the imagination, right? In grammar school, we love to awaken wonder and to uh, have, give them these images that they can grasp onto and carry with them. And uh, one of Lewis's essays, he talks about the role of the imagination. And he says that the imagination is the organ of meaning, whereas reason is the organ, the natural organ of truth. And what's beautiful about Narnia and fantasy in, in general, especially Lord of the Rings that we were just mm-hmm. talking about, is that it gives us something to grasp onto. A lot of these truths is, you know, taking away the sin, tearing off the old man and putting on the new man. All these uh, theological concepts may be above you know, our grammar school students. But we don't have to teach them the theological doctrines directly yet. We can give them these images that they can grasp onto. It gives them meaning. It puts flesh onto the, onto the doctrines, right? The, the doctrine of you know, Christ tearing away our sin. They have this image now of Aslan tearing away the dragon skin, and it, it enriches their mind, enriches their imagination, so that when they bring their, you know, their reason to it, they have something to operate on. Right? He says, if you just have reason, if you don't, if you're like Eustace and you've read all the wrong books, <laughs> what are you going to reason about? There's nothing for that apparatus of reason to latch onto. And that's what we're doing here in grammar school is giving them these images, these stories that will bring, uh, be a foundation to them so that when they get up to rhetoric school and they get to talk about and debate these theological concepts, they have these images that they can grasp onto. Mm-hmm. To move us to virtue. I mean, that really is truly kind of the only other thing I have to say is really going back to imagination. The whole goal of that is to move us on to, to virtue. And I, I really do think it it's important for them to understand that every students to understand that every single decision you make sends you down a path. And mm-hmm. so it's clear in these books that every single decision you make sends you down a path. And what do we want to, to what path do you want to choose? And when you have these books that are, you know, fostering this imagination, and like you said, it, it, it reveals sin. It sends you, it sends students to either virtue or vice. Mm-hmm. And we can capitalize on talking about what virtues are we bringing out, the courage, um, self-control. All of these virtues play out in the books very, very clearly. And so it's really fun to bring them out. It's really fun to see how the Holy Spirit brings it out each year because it's different and it's a different group of kids. It's a different need. It's a different issue. So it's, it's just fun to see how the Holy Spirit actually, um, really, it really guides the discussion, so to speak. So, yeah, one one thing, speaking of the Holy Spirit, like one day we're, I'm in a lesson and it's when we have Lucy and Susan and Peter's journey to the, to the stone table. And then we have Edmund's journey and back to choices. And we, we kind of compared their journeys what they got, what they didn't get, the joys, the hardships, and they were both hard. That was very same, that was very similar, but you know, it was kind of cool to stop and think, Edmund did have a choice. Mm-hmm. He could have been over here, 
Mm -hmm. he, you know, and just to look at those choices that these children make or, you know, and to obey, to not obey, you know, they do have these choices all along the, the way. But I was just, I just love, I think for me as a reader, as an adult reader, and I encourage my students, don't ever put this book away, like get it out mm -hmm. again and again, because um, it does remind me to look into my own faith. There's deep things about faith, but then he calls us to have faith like a child. Like, mm -hmm. and so, I love this too, for, for them to read it now and then to mm -hmm. pick it back up and to remember what it's like to be a child and to trust, you know, the lion. Right, when they, they enter into this, you know, this, this realm, this fantasy world of Narnia, and, you know, usually, you know, common criticism is, you know, why we read fantasy, you know, it's just escapist. Um, when we go into Narnia, we see this moral universe where our choices have consequences, where uh, virtue takes sacrifice but it's worth doing, where vice has all these uh, uh, troubles that come with it. And we go into Narnia and we see the way that we, the world ought to work, the, you know, the way that God has laid out the, the moral uh, aspect of being human, so that when we come out, we're, we're not surprised. We, we see dragons and we see witches that just go by other names. Right? We, we're able to use that, uh, these images, again, that we have and we see them in the real world. And what Lewis says in one of his other essays, you know, when a, a boy reads of an enchanted wood in a story, he doesn't, when he goes to a wood, he says, man, this is not an enchanted wood. I wish I, wish I could go back to the story. He <laughs> says, all woods are a little enchanted. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. But mm -hmm. I just love to like the, today, like when we finish the book, they're all like, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. And one, one of my students actually said, I just wish it would go on and on and on. <laughs> and it does. Yeah, no. it's it's right. yeah. The great story goes on and on, yes. and which every chapter is better than the one before. Yes. So I heard both of you, Tanya and Alex, talk about uh, reading the right books or reading the wrong books. And then uh, one of the things that, that I kind of wanted to touch on today was uh, in... Uh, Prince Caspian, when Caspian comes along and, he, and he's little and his nurse tells him mm. about these stories and y'all mm. talk about remembering, you know, teaching them to remember. When they're young, we teach them to obey. When they're little bitty, they don't really know what that is, but we teach it to them over and over and the repetition and anyway, the history becomes important and uh, Caspian, you know, he is just soaking this in until Miraz, you know, the protagonist, the usurper, hears about it and he's afraid of Aslan and he's heard all of these horror stories and the Telmarines have, you know, said we're not, we're not going to go near the woods, we're not going to go down there. And then he really, um, he gets rid of Caspian's nurse because she has told him these stories. But I read somewhere that it, um, you know, Miraz wanted to tear down the history. And then when I was reading that this year, just you think of today, 2021, and there, there are things like that, you know, where history, people don't want the history that we have, you know, but we need, we do need to remember, remember what it, remember what it was, remember what God's word says, just over and over and over. Well, that's great. Thank you all so much for being here. This has been a lot of fun. So thank you all. Thank Enjoyed you. it. Thank, thank you. you. Very good.